Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the president was in California last week for a major summit with the leader of China, but he also took time to spotlight what's been going on with the California Health Insurance Exchange. Well, of course, everyone always looks to California with its largest state population in the country, but they're also the first in the nation to get that state-run health insurance exchange up and online for residents there to review. You know, the president wanted to take time from that summit to really point out that in spite of all the naysayers and the doomsday prediction about the potential for skyrocketing health insurance costs, quite the opposite is happening in California. It has over 13 different insurance companies patients can choose from. And the president noted that in this case of California, the health care law really has done what it was designed to do. When you look at their health insurance exchange, it's creating healthy competition among the insurers who are competing for new business, and it seems to have kept prices down even far below the Congressional Budget Office estimates. Mark, I thought that was an interesting finding. It really was. And, you know, the president also noted there are a couple of other states out in that West Coast a corridor that are also doing great work with their exchange coverages under the Affordable Care Act. And he noted that Washington and Oregon are also leaders in the charge. And the president pointed out that not only are previously uninsured Californians going to be able to select from some very competitively priced and high-quality insurance plans, but many will be able to count on subsidies to help offset the cost of the premium. So I think that's something folks are maybe just beginning to come to understand. You know, as you start to contemplate it and you're interested in finding out more about eligibility for those tax breaks, you should go to healthcare.gov. The Kaiser Family Foundation is also a place where you can get great state-by-state breakdowns. We've been using that for a while. It's on their website and very easy to access infographics, and you can find out more by going to kff.org. But you know, Mark, once all these new customers gain access to coverage, they're still going to need help in accessing care and then navigating this whole health care system, which can be a real challenge for it people. Really, it really can, and something our guest today knows quite a bit about. Dr. Harold P. Freeman is a pioneer in developing standards for patient navigations. He's the founder of the Patient Navigator Institute. We also today will have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson paying us a visit. As always, she's shining the light of truth on some misstatements about health policy and health reform. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Harold Freeman in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The push is on to prepare for the next wave of the Affordable Care Act, those online insurance exchanges that will be open for enrollment in October. But government officials are urging those millions of Americans who are going to start purchasing health insurance in these new online marketplaces to start doing their homework now, whether they're in a state that's setting up their own exchange, the handful of states partnering with the federal government, or the close to 30 states relying on just the federal exchange. There are ways you can get information now about what your insurance options might look like and also what tax subsidies you may qualify for. Customers are urged to start the process now by going to the government's website, healthcare.gov. The Kaiser Family Foundation has also created a nice tool for folks to calculate what their premium tax subsidy might be. That's kff.org. Meanwhile, the state of Massachusetts, the first state in the nation to pass near-universal insurance coverage, is preparing to fill in gaps of a so-called glitch in the health care law. 
The law's language offers discounts and tax subsidies to small businesses for individual policies, but not family policies, an oversight that could actually cause 4 million Americans, including close to half a million children, to lose coverage. Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick is initiating a fix in that state that would provide subsidies and expanded coverage through the state's Medicaid program to fix the glitch. And showdown in Arizona. They're staring down the barrel of a budget deadline. Governor Jan Brewer, no fan of the health care law as a whole, is in favor of taking up the federal government's full funding of the Medicaid expansion portion of the law, which would expand health coverage to some 350,000 people in that state. Some on the conservative side of the aisle are still opposed to expanding any Medicaid program. And designated drivers, one antidote to the drunk driving scourge, right? Well, a Florida study of a 1,000 patrons leaving watering holes in the Sunshine State found that of those who classified themselves as the designated drivers, breathalyzers showed only 65% had abstained from drinking, 17% had blood alcohol levels between 0.02 and 0.049, and 18% of those self-proclaimed designated drivers had a blood alcohol level over 0.05. So apparently even designated drivers are asking for one more for the road. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Harold P. Freeman, founder and CEO of the Patient Navigator Institute, as well as the founder of the Ralph Lauren Center for Cancer Care and Prevention in New York. Dr. Freeman is the past director of the National Cancer Institute's Center for Reduced Cancer Disparities and is the former national president of the American Cancer Society. For the past 25 years, Dr. Freeman was the director of surgery at the Harlem Hospital of New York and is professor of surgery emeritus at Columbia University College of surgeons. Dr. Freeman, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, you've been a leading pioneer in the patient navigation movement, and you've witnessed firsthand during your decades practicing in Harlem the negative impact ethnic and economic disparities have on health outcomes. And as chief of surgery at Harlem Hospital, you saw the evidence all too often that these disparities lead to patients coming into your care with more far advanced stages of cancer than anyone would like to start dealing with, which of course we know are always more challenging to treat. How did that experience inform your decision several decades ago to find a new way to approach health disparities? And Tell us what motivated you to launch the nation's first practice navigation program back in 1990. It started after I had trained at Memorial Sloan Kettering as a cancer surgeon and elected to go to Harlem to work. And I've been in Harlem since that time, which is 45 years. When I first came to Harlem, I was facing patients in the clinics uh, that were coming in with very, very advanced cancer, particularly breast cancer, which was a special interest of mine. And women were coming in, for example, sometimes with ulcerated bleeding masses. Uh, And this really upset me a great deal. These people were coming in so late that my skills were not really applicable to them. And it made me step back and and ask the question, well, who are these people and, and why are they coming in so late? And it turned out that the people in Harlem at that time in particular were all uh, black and at Harlem Hospital where I was working, they were all poor. So the question arose is what happens to poor black people with cancer? And, and, and the question, what is poverty? What does it mean in general uh, for anyone, irrespective of race? And 
what does it mean to be black? And so it led me to look at the population. And first of all, I found that the women coming in for what I thought was the first visit had tried to get in before, usually through the emergency room, mm-hmm. and had been waiting long periods of time, got to see a doctor finally, who would tell them, you know, you're in the wrong place, first of all, and besides you're uninsured, go downtown 100 blocks away and get your Medicaid card and come back mm-hmm. and make an appointment. So this was a typical thing that I saw. And uh, the women began to say to me, and the process of becoming diagnosed and with, for breast cancer and treated is more painful than the painless lump. So I thought of two things. First of all, I thought of a way to get people in for screening early. So by 1979, I had set up ways to screen women for breast cancer, including mammography, at two different sites. So I essentially solved the problem of getting the test done, but it, underco- it uncovered another set of problems. Now I'm screening poor women, half of whom were uninsured, and now some of them have a finding, which you would expect. And it hadn't really solved a way to get them from finding to resolution. And that brought up in my mind the idea that it became navigation. So they have barriers to getting from the finding to resolution to diagnosis and treatment, then we need to navigate them. And so that, that was really brought to a higher level of understanding for me when I was president of the American Cancer Society in 1989 and I held hearings throughout America in seven American cities where people were invited to, to testify who had two things. They were poor and they had cancer. And out of those hearings in 1989, the testimony of people who were of all races, all ethnic groups, uh, indicated that they say they meet barriers when they attempt to get into and through this complex system. But the point of meeting barriers sort of gelled in my mind that this is the same thing I've been experiencing in Harlem. So in 1990, a year later, I set up the, the nation's first patient navigation program, well, Dr. Freeman, I wonder, looking back on those early days, sort of the, the seed days of your patient navigation program, share with us uh, the origins of some of the practices. Even we know that uh, to set up a screening program does not guarantee that women will understand its availability and arrive for it, and I'm sure you were dealing with other cancers as well. So maybe share a little bit of the strategies of how you connected the patients in these communities to come in, and also who were those early patient navigators? Where did you find them, and how did you train them, and how would you describe that group of people? What I really found was that we were tending to say to the community, you need to have a mammogram. And, and, and yet, most of those women couldn't really get a mammogram. They couldn't pay for it. They were half one insured. And so the first thing I had to do was to, to connect a way for people to get what I was saying they should get. The question of whether people respond to medical advice is deeply connected to whether or not they feel they can really do it. And so by offering a test, whether you could pay for it or not, that was a, a step forward uh, to get them in. And so we, the, the studies of navigation that have now gone pretty far uh, in the literature have now shown uh, nationally that when navigation is applied, more uninsured and poor women will come in for a test. Navigation and, and screening solved that problem in Harlem. Now, when the people came in, in that early program in 1990, we had to work out what to do. 
So what I actually did was to put the patient navigator in the room with the examining doctor. The navigator is then observing the dialogue between the doctor and the patient. At the end of any physical examination or, or, or examination by a doctor, a recommendation is made by the doctor. And at that point, the navigator would take the patient in our system to another room and sit down and ask certain key questions. First of all, did you understand what the doctor just said to you? Very often, the patient had not really understood, and we had to solve that right away by calling in a, a nurse or a doctor. Or the, or the question would be, is there any barrier to your getting the, the biopsy of the breast that the doctor has recommended, for example? And the patient would say, perhaps, I don't have health insurance. Then we have to, to solve that problem through our navigation program. Or the patient may simply say, I am afraid and I don't trust these doctors. Then we have to try to lay the fear. And having a person who is a navigator who talks directly to a patient tends to allay fear and distress. I chose the navigators in that initial Harlem program from the community of Harlem and selecting people not on the basis of how much formal education the navigators to be had, but on whether they were compassionate. Could they communicate? Were they articulate? Were they smart people? And so we, we selected the first two and four navigators on that basis. And, and that brought in a person who was culturally related with respect to what was needed to communicate with people in that particular community. You know, Dr. Freeman, uh, we've been involved in providing primary care to the underserved here in Connecticut for the past 41 years and really uh, are very excited about this concept of patient navigation that you've uh, helped found. And it's fair to say that all of our patients in the community don't necessarily come to us. We oftentimes have to go to them. It seems that that's the sort of heart of patient navigation. You both have it in the office setting, but it also starts back in the community setting as well. So walk through for our listeners a little bit about how that part of it works. First of all, let me say that I finally came to the large concept that there's a healthcare continuum that we must be concerned about. In the largest, broadest sense, that continuum starts with the point that everybody lives in a community, in a place in a community, and needs to be attracted into a health care facility, it doesn't stop there. We call that outreach navigation. When a person comes into a facility, has a test, then that is a finding, and we need to rapidly move the finding to diagnosis, which usually requires some kind of biopsy. The next phase is now the person has a disease like cancer, and we've got to navigate them through primary treatment. And at the end of that treatment, they're still alive, and there's, there's a survivorship area from the point of primary treatment to the end of life. The healthcare continuum that I try to address starts with people living in a neighborhood and ends when they die. Now, breaking out the early part, uh, there's something we now call outreach navigation. We send navigators into the neighborhood the places where people meet in Harlem, uh, churches uh, are really an important place for us to meet people, but also community centers. Mm -hmm. The navigator goes out to talk to groups of people and informs them what tests they should have that have been determined by scientific knowledge. And if the person fits a category such as you're 50 years old, therefore 
it is believed that you should have a colonoscopy, then the navigator will talk to that person right in the community and see if they can get them to agree to have a colonoscopy. In our setting at the Ralph Lauren Center, those navigators carry computers with them, and they're able to make appointments directly into the Ralph Lauren Center at that moment. Now, the obvious navigation part of the phase of navigation is not over until the test is done. And so, in summary, when you send out people to talk to people who people trust, who will take time with them, who are knowledgeable about what the tests are that should be done, and can really direct them to a specific place where the test will be done, then you have a good start. Dr. Freeman, I'd like to talk about the Patient Navigator Institute that you launched in 2007 for a moment. I understand that I think a press release said you've crossed the pond and the United Kingdom has adopted uh, the patient navigator model, (laughs) which is very exciting. But that sort of leads me to ask the question about Uh, just say in the United States, to what degree has this become the standard of care uh, in either, you know, more narrowly in in cancer care or the standard of care generally? Do you see uh, patient navigation and patient navigators becoming part of the established framework, something that any patient could expect would be offered to them or provided to them as part of their care treatment? And of course, uh, you know, we might talk about this a little more later. That always also brings up the issue of who's paying for these services anyway. But maybe first, is it, this, is it now the standard of care? I, I think that is, is moving toward being a standard of care. And the best evidence for that point is that in 2012, the American College of Surgeons Commission on Cancer uh, which uh, approves cancer programs in America and is a respected organization for doing that, has determined that in order to satisfy approval by the College of Surgeons, beginning in 2015, a cancer program must have a patient navigation process. And, and so that is driving this to the point of being a standard of care. Since the American College of Surgeons currently has uh, approximately 1,500 cancer centers uh, that are approved by them. So it is, it is kind of moving in that direction. It has a ways to go. What we are seeing now re- in reality is that hospitals all over America have embraced this concept in some form, uh, playing out differently in different settings, uh, but thousands of American hospitals now have patient navigators and so I, I would say that's the question. It is, it has moved very rapidly since it started in 1990 in one community. Um, uh, we published on it in 1995. Um, the president of the United States, George Bush, signed the Patient Navigator and Chronic Disease Prevention Act uh, based on the Harlem work in 2005. Um, the Affordable Care Act uh, refers to patient navigation, and it requires it for helping uh, people who are uninsured to get into insurance by way of exchanges, an estimated 30 million people will be addressed and requires that patient navigators be seen. And, and so we've seen that the government has, in several different branches, in, uh, uh, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare, the National Cancer Institute, um, HRSA, and the CDC have all sponsored navigation demonstration programs. So it looks like it's on the way to some level of acceptance. And, and of course, the thing that you raised, the question is how are we going to pay for it? 
is certainly the next question. We're speaking today with Dr. Harold P. Freeman, founder and CEO of the Patient Navigator Institute. He's also founder of the Ralph Lauren Center for Cancer Care and Prevention in New York. He's the past director of the National Cancer Institute Center to Reduce Cancer Disparity and is the former national director of the American Cancer Society. Dr. Freeman, you mentioned just a moment ago the Affordable Care Act, and let's just take a little closer look at uh uh, how this impacts the work that you've been doing. Uh, there are many of the healthcare laws policies are specifically aimed at reducing health disparities that still exist widely in this country, disparities that have led to a proportionally higher rate of cancer deaths among the underserved. What are some of the more promising aspects of the healthcare law that have a meaningful impact on closing the disparity gap? And what aspects of the law pose the greatest potential for leveling the healthcare uh, playing field moving forward? Well, the two uh, main um, references, as far as I can, in my reading of the of the um, Affordable Care Act, with respect to patient navigation, the first one is the one I just referred to, where the the the, the act beginning next year is really indicating that approximately 30 million people who are now uninsured will be insured by way of these changes. And the government seems to recognize that that's going to be a a task because uh, people who are uninsured tend to be poor and less educated. So they have decided that they will will put patient navigators uh, to help those people to get into insurance. And, And the government, through... Centers for Medicaid and Medicare has actually um, given about $54 million to to, to pay for this task. L- let me say this. Um, that's a good first step. Um, it, it, it is a part of navigation to, to, to get them financially um, into some insurance. But <clears throat> the, one of the concerns I have is that that is not enough in my experience. It's not enough to, to just have people trained to get people onto insurance because the problem of people who are poor and uninsured goes far beyond the financial coverage. The, the issues related, for example, to, to, to housing and less social support that need to be solved, the issues related to less education and mispromoting lifestyles, and, and even the people on Medicaid uh, in America. Um, have shockingly no better outcome uh, when the measure is death compared to people who are uninsured. We have found, though, that in Harlem, in our, in our work in Harlem, that when you when you navigate people on Medicaid, you can close that gap. So uh, the Affordable Care Act does one thing, that, that getting people onto insurance through exchanges, uh, a sort of financial navigation needs to be be. be carried to a higher level, in my view, uh, just beyond the insurance part. And secondly, the Affordable Care Act extends the Patient Navigation Act signed by George Bush to 2015. So I think they're recognizing in language the concept, uh, but I, I think there's some more work to be done to, to really uh, apply patient navigation in a broader sense than financial navigation. 
Dr. Freeman, we have uh, a lot of folks on the show who are developing new technologies that assist all of us in healthcare in expanding both access and improving outcomes. Certainly the global um, M Health movement where mobile technologies facilitate field workers and community health workers uh, in community health settings and an explosion in the development of the medical apps for phones and so forth. I wonder, uh, when you think about technology and healthcare, how do you foresee the technology impacting the patient navigation movement in a meaningful way? Are there some interesting things out there that our listeners ought to be keeping an eye on? There are indeed some interesting things. Uh, and I think this, these things can be very helpful, the, these um, electronic and smartphone-type approaches. We, we're actually beginning to work on one uh, ourselves. But my concern is that, that can't be the fundamental way. Still, I think there's something about a personal approach in medicine that still counts very heavily. And so if you augment a personal, you know, related type program, helping people one-on-one in a personal way with some electronic device, that would be a good thing. But I think if you try to do it on electronics alone, probably not the right way to go. We've been speaking today with... Dr. Harold P. Freeman, founder and CEO of the Patient Navigator Institute and founder of the Ralph Lauren Center for Cancer Care and Prevention in New York and the past director of the National Cancers Institute Center to Reduce Cancer Disparities. You can find out more about Dr. Freeman's groundbreaking work by going to hpfreemanpni.org. Dr. Freeman, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, Mark and Margaret, President Obama was pushing the new insurance exchanges recently and encouraging those who need to buy insurance on their own to sign up through state-based exchanges beginning October 1st. This enrollment period will last through the end of March. The exchanges are a major part of the Affordable Care Act. Currently, 15.4 million Americans buy their own insurance on what's called the individual market, but that number is expected to increase to 24 million by 2023 through the exchanges where millions of uninsured Americans will gain coverage. The Obama administration wants about 7 million people to join the exchanges in the open enrollment period that will begin in October, and it wants about 2.6 million of those to be young and healthy folks. There's a big push to get the young to join the exchanges so that the risk pools are not overwhelmingly made up of older and less healthy individuals, which would bring premium costs up. As for whether premiums will cost more or less than people would pay without the law, that depends a lot on individuals and their circumstances. Were they buying a cheap, bare-bones plan before? Do they have pre-existing conditions that price them out of the individual market? What kind of insurance protections existed in their home states before the federal law? Will they qualify for premium subsidies, which will go to those earning up to 400% of the federal poverty level? For now, we recommend that those who will buy their own coverage visit the Kaiser Family Foundation's online subsidy calculator. It's merely an estimate, but you can get an idea of what premiums might cost and what kind of subsidy you could receive to offset the price. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. 
factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg has been taking a number of hits lately for attempting to ban everything from styrofoam packaging for takeout food to large sugary drinks in restaurants and city-run facilities. Dodging criticisms that he's practicing nanny politics, Bloomberg has nonetheless forged ahead. He cites his interest in not only improving the health of his New York City constituents, but in setting an example for other public officials to follow around the country. It's been 10 years since Mayor Bloomberg launched his first controversial ban, ending smoking in bars and restaurants throughout the city's five boroughs. The proposed Smoke-Free Air Act was met at the time with a hailstorm of criticism and dire warnings of lost business and tax revenue due to the ban. But at a recent gathering at a venerable old New York City watering hole, the Old Town Bar off Union Square, Bloomberg shared facts that bore out quite a different story. Since the ban went into effect, health officials estimate that 10,000 lives have been saved in reduced smoking rates and a dramatic reduction in exposure to secondhand smoke. And the restaurant and the bar owners, well, they've apparently seen the light as well. The mayor was flanked by Old Town's owner, Gerard Meager, who was one of the band's most vocal opponents at the time. Meager compared his tavern's receipts from before and after the ban and found his business actually increased by 20%. Turns out, once the ban was in place and the perennial blue haze of smoke was gone, people began to spend more on the restaurant food. Meager also touted another bonus, fewer cleaning bills. Smoking bans are now commonplace across the country, boding well for the health of those working in bars and restaurants as well as the patrons. A municipal smoking ban that not only improves the health and well-being of workers and patrons, but has turned out to be good for the business bottom line as well. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.